1: ladies and gentlemen, to our conversation about Russian influence in the US election. Uh, My name is Ted Gerber, and I'm going to be the moderator this this, uh, evening, and um, I'm the director of the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia. And uh, just a few brief uh, program notes before we start. So first of all, I want to point out that this uh, event, so there have been many events across the country of uh, experts, uh, so-called experts anyway, talking about Russian uh, election meddling. And I think this one is somewhat unique, though, because uh, the idea behind it is to bring together uh, two different uh, perspectives. The uh, U.S.-based perspective, which is represented by my colleagues from the Elections Research Center, uh, who I'll introduce uh, just before uh, we turn the floor over to them. And then the other side, the the more Russia-focused side, which is my colleagues in CRICA, the Center for Russian, East Europe, and Central Asia. And I also want to thank the, uh, the, it's called the Society and Politics Committee of the Wisconsin Union Directorate for also uh, contributing to this event. Um, So um, I'm not going to say much by way of introduction other than to note that uh, uh, a week ago last Friday, of course, uh, an indictment was released by the special prosecutor of uh, 13 Russian individuals and entities who have been now formally accused of illegal activities uh, designed to influence the outcome of the US election. Uh, I'm sure it's no uh, surprise to everybody in this room that something has been going on uh, with respect to this issue, it's generated a lot of discussion in the media, a lot of statements by politicians of various stripes, and we are here tonight to discuss uh, what it is we know, what it is we don't know perhaps, um, and both uh, sort of uh, from the perspective of what was Russia trying to accomplish, what did Russia actually do, how was the experience in the U.S. side, and um, what I want to try to keep keep this to be more of a sort of a conversational format. So what I've asked the panelists to do is to each prepare a very brief, you know, five to seven minute initial statement, and then after the panelists make their initial statements, I'm going to give them the opportunity to ask questions <coughs> of one another, uh, so we'll have one round of that and then some responses, and then we'll open it up to uh, questions and, and comments as well from the floor. So. Um, Let me just then, uh, I'll I'll tell you what, I'll I'll introduce each speaker, and we're going to proceed in the order that we're we're seated here, so we'll go one at a time. And so our first speaker is uh, Barry Burton, who's the director of the Elections Research Center here at the University of uh, Wisconsin-Madison, and also a professor of political science, and he's going to kick us off by... Uh, giving us a a rundown of what it is we know about what's happened.
2: Uh, Thanks, Ted, and and for all the sponsors and for all of you coming out on a warm uh, Tuesday evening. Uh, I want to talk about the things we have a sense that Russia actually did in the 2016 election in three parts. Uh, These are three ways we think of the kind of hacking or rigging or influence peddling that Russia may have uh, engaged in. Uh, this is part of what I think the intelligence community concluded in its report back in January 2017 when it said the Russian effort was multifaceted. It had lots of parts. I want to warn us to keep those parts separate. Some of them are, are small and interesting but not that important. Others are really important and are things we need to be focused on uh, going forward. So here are the three pieces I would separate as being three different kinds of hacks that are really different from one another. One kind of hack is the hacking into email systems and the leaking of those emails. There was a hack into the Democratic National Committee's email server. There was a hack into John Podesta's email account. He was high up in the Clinton campaign. Those got released to WikiLeaks and put out into the campaign environment at strategic times. We can can talk about those. Those aren't acts against the government. Those are acts against private parties, a political party and a campaign official. Second kind of hack is the sort of activity that happened on social media, the information warfare that was waged on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere, uh, either through advertising or through activities that looked like organic human behavior but were actually bots or people pretending to be something they weren't. And my colleague, Youngmi Kim, is gonna have a lot more to say about that. Again, that's not an act against a government, that's use of existing private social media infrastructure to try to disseminate messages. But then there's a third kind of hack I want to say more about, and that's the attempts to infiltrate the U.S. election system, the actual government infrastructure that runs elections in this country. Uh, There are some things we know and some things I think we still don't know. We know from the intelligence community that Russian efforts got access to maybe 20 to 35 state voter registration databases. That is, they got access by intrusion, to at least see those data. So those would include records on registered voters in a bunch of states, and maybe some confidential information about those voters. Only in one state are we sure that some of those (coughs) records were actually downloaded, that was in (coughs) Illinois, where about 90,000 records were downloaded, but not manipulated, right? Simply copied onto some other device. Uh, There are also rumors in the press about one other state having that done, but the intelligence community has not verified that. So that's one set of things, but I'll just note, as worrisome as that is, none, no voter registration record in any state, to our knowledge, was modified by Russian activists. There are a separate set of concerns that get lumped into that, which are changes that might have been made to the election system beyond the voter registration databases, either to voting machines or the way votes are tallied or the websites that where this information is reported. And there's actually zero evidence that there was any tampering into any of those things. So I, I think we have... Real worries, and, and right now the elections community, election professionals in all the states are working with one another and with the Department of Homeland Security to try to shore up our defenses for the next election, and I'm happy to talk about in the questioning back and forth what has been done and what might be done, uh, but I think just as my opening statement, it's really helpful to keep that separate from the other issues that will come up tonight.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Uh- Professor And uh, our next speaker is uh, Scott Gilbuck, who's a professor of political science and a uh, longstanding uh, expert on Russia and Russian politics. And um, he's going to talk in more detail about sort of the, the Russian side of what they were attempting to do.
3: Okay, great. Thanks. So I thought what I could do is try to put Russian activities in the 2016 presidential election in the U.S into a bit of context and talk about the uh, Russian activities to Kremlin activities to manipulate the information space in Russia and how those then developed into the Russian intervention in the 2016 presidential election in this country. Okay, so the first thing that is maybe important to understand is that the Internet Research Agency, so this is the organization in St. Petersburg, uh, from which uh, the various forms of manipulation of social media in the U.S. originated, that the folks who work at this agency are primarily targeting Russian domestic politics and not American politics. So estimates are that at its peak there are about 1,000 people who worked for the Internet research, research Agency. Of those, probably less than 10% worked for the translation project, the so-called translation project, which seems to primarily target the U.S. Okay, so where did the Internet Research Agency come from? It's established in 2013, and it's important to understand the context, the political context in Russia at the time that this agency was established. So in 2011, United Russia, which is the main Kremlin-backed party in Russia, had won a narrow parliamentary victory. There were widespread allegations of electoral fraud, and substantial street protests that followed those elections. This is also the tail end in 2013 of the Arab Spring. Uh, uh, Arab Spring runs roughly 2010 through 2012. And both the protests in Russia after the parliamentary elections and the Arab Spring were seen by the Kremlin as having been facilitated by social media. And so there seems to have been an awareness at this time that something needed to be done to bring social media under control. So the traditional Kremlin propaganda strategy had underemphasized the role of social media. So the traditional strategy had focused on direct control of the broadcast media, so the three major television networks in Russia are all uh, one way or another directly controlled by the state, also indirect control of many of the most important print media, which were typically owned and and consequently controlled by Kremlin-friendly businessmen. But there was no great firewall as in China, no widespread blocking of websites, uh, uh, no systematic attempt to try to control what people saw online. There were attempts, of course, but nothing on the scale of of, uh, what we see in contemporary China. So to some extent, this changed then after 2011, 2012. So there was an attempt to assert control over social media uh, after these events, after the uh, election uh, protests, uh, after the Arab Spring. Uh, so just to give you a few examples, so Facebook was late to Russia. So the, the major uh, uh, social network of that sort in Russia is not Facebook, but a, uh, a company called Kontaktsya. The Kontaktya was set up by a graduate of St. Petersburg State University, but under pressure, he essentially transferred control in 2014 to Alisher Usmanov, who was a Kremlin-connected oligarch who happens to control a number of other important media assets in Russia. There was a blogger law that was passed in 2014 that essentially uh, regulated any bloggers that had more than 3,000 visitors a day, so this is not my blog, but uh, (laughs) many of the uh, most important political blogs in Russia have more than 3,000 visitors a day, and these, under the new law, were to be regulated as mass media outlets were. So it was an attempt to bring them under control. And then, from our perspective, what's maybe most important was the institutionalization of bot attacks and trolling through the creation, uh, it seems, primarily of this uh, group, the Internet Research Agency. So just to tell you a little bit about what we know about the activities of russian trolls and uh, bot engineers so this is an active area of current research there's a lot of work being done at the moment to try to understand exactly what trolls are doing exactly how bots are effective and so forth but just to give you a sense of what we think we know at the moment bot use really takes off after the Crimean independence on referendum in March 2014 and by the end of 2014 early 2015 the vast majority of twitter accounts where twitter users are tweeting regularly about politics are not human controlled but are bots so estimates 60 70 80% of politically active twitter accounts are bots by by early 2015 and the primary role of these bots seems to have been to drive up the search rank of favorable news stories. So by continually tweeting about stories that took a particular line that took the Kremlin line, it was a way of making those more visible to users who might go to Google uh, or various Russian search engines for their news. Um, as far as trolls are concerned, uh, there was an interesting list of Russian trolls that was published. In uh, uh, a couple of years ago and there's been some work since then to try to understand in what way trolls are attempting to influence conversations online. As far as we can tell what seems to be happening is that trolls are pretty good at diverting attention from topics that that troll masters don't want people to talk about. Uh, They're not so good at necessarily persuading people so the sort of typical intervention seems to be to turn a conversation about something that Russian authorities don't want people to talk about, into an argument about the intelligence of the people who are commenting, or to to distract attention from the issue at hand in that way. Okay, so these are just some examples. I I guess the main thing to take away from this is that these are skills that Russian trolls and bot engineers developed for purposes of influencing domestic politics in Russia, but they're skills that they then brought to the US election, and, and these were also practiced in various other countries, which I think Megan's going to talk about in a few minutes.
1: Okay, great, uh, thanks a lot, Scott. Uh, so our next speaker is Professor Youngmi Kim, who's a professor of journalism and mass communications and also an affiliate of the Elections Research Center and of the Department of Political Science. And uh, she's going to dive into more details about what specifically was uh, taking place as part of the influence campaign in the US.
4: Thank you, so uh, I'll, my open up, uh, opening statement is going to be about <coughs> what we know about uh, Russian interference in the 2016 elections uh, on the social media. Um, some of this uh, is in part like, uh, based on my own research team's uh, empirical research uh, findings. Uh, so I'd love to talk about the details of our research, but in the interest of, inter- in the interest of time, I'll just to highlight the key findings uh, and uh, not share the details. Um, so Russian interference on social media having been brought to public attention uh, since Facebook admitted uh, that uh, they discovered like 3,000 ads by Internet Research Agency in, in September 2017. Um, that was after long silence. There has been a rumor that like, there are a lot of like, engagement uh, on social media. Um, <clears throat> well, but then like right before and after the public hearings, uh, the number uh, went up. Like in some you know, cases, like you know, ten times more than like, they initially announced like a Twitter, like they initially set up two, 201 accounts, uh, and then like, one day before the public hearings, they said, well, in fact, there are 3,000 account and a 3,600 uh, bots account. So uh, in conclusion, the like scope, like a how prevalent the social media interference uh, was uh, in the 2016 uh, election uh, is largely unknown. Uh, But just to give you some sense of what it uh, was, uh, we, our research team actually looked at um, the campaign messages during the 2016 election, so ahead before the election day, uh, we analyzed the content, and uh, before the uh, the Facebook, uh, uh, Facebook's announcement widely known to the public, uh, we identified suspicious uh, groups, uh, and then later, uh, one out of six our suspicious groups turned out to be uh, Russian groups. Um, so I'll just uh, um, you know, leave it there. Uh, what kind of a tactics that like Russian uh, groups are using? A lot of people are talking about boats, uh but I just want to emphasize that boats are not, not the only one that Russians use. Um, so there are a lot of social media uh, run by human-controlled groups. Uh, however, it is very dis, uh, difficult uh, to uncover uh, because they tend to disguise like, a true identity. So there are a number of different ways uh, to disguise identity. One is uh, just to use very generic names so that nobody notices. So American veterans, uh, American patriots, uh, things like that. Uh, sometimes they use the group names uh, that are actually exist in the US, uh, like the nonprofit names, but uh, not active uh, so for example like the United of Muslims South America um, that group exists uh, in California uh, actually for 30 years uh, but in fact they not they are not active at all um, so or sometimes they use the like names that are very s- similar to uh, known actors names like a 10 GOP uh, or um, Black matters, uh, so similar to light matters. So, uh, or sometimes like they use like what our team discovered is that they just use like headline styles uh, on the Facebook, <coughs> uh, just just the same as a regular post, but uh, it is linked linked to like a random landing pages or meme sites and things like that. So, uh, various ways to disguise identity. Uh, in terms of the content um, and tone and styles, again, a variety of styles and tone uh, and content. Uh, some mimic just you know, memes and entertaining stuff, uh, or some ads are linked to fake gift shops, uh, things like that. Um, some uh, groups like, take very uh, traditional campaign styles. Um, there are also so-called like, call to action, Uh, join the event uh, type of uh, ads. Um, The content usually focuses on divisive issues like uh, guns, uh, LGBT, immigration, race, um, and the like. Um, So overall, it looks like uh, it takes a typical disinformation uh, operation tactics that are designed to arouse anger, Uh, for example, enough of uh, hate crimes against Native Americans. Um, or division, uh, or especially with like a de- misleading, deceptive, or conspirational information. So, for example, like a Hillary created, uh, quite a quieter, um, jump making funded uh, ISIS and things like that. Uh, however, some of the ads is on demanding uh, everyday affairs uh, and just the solidarity building. So, support black business. I'm sure our coders just dismissed this ads uh, because. It just it doesn't sound political or uh, arouse <laughs> anger anything like that. Um, some ads like it has been a lot of discussion about whether these ads like it, uh, promote or support like a particular candidates or attack like, a particular candidates. Um, that is, I think, is still unclear uh, based on our limited data. Uh, since, uh, we only found like a two percent of the ads. I could explicitly mention uh, candidate names. Uh, the Russian ads are shared um, on digital platforms uh, without being noticed by the public, not because the, sh- uh, the audience reach is so small, but because uh, it's targeting tactics. It's just the way it works on the digital media. So a lot of this, uh, most of the ads, like 99% of ads, are targeted like at specific individuals in the group, and then it's only shown to those people. So the actual content is not publicly available. So that's why it is just a hard to spot. Um, and in terms of targeting, there are two kinds of targeting. One is, like, a, we did, like a Barry mentioned, they like uh, could use an email or identify uh, specific people according to Facebook or tech companies like Twitter and Google, that didn't happen. Um, usually Russian uh, groups like used uh menu option style, like targeting, based on interests, uh, those who ever clicked uh, NRI's uh, Facebook page, uh, for example, or based on their behavior uh, on, their, um, on their social media. Um, and uh, well, Facebook allows a very narrow targeting uh, that includes like a, uh, political leanings. And then Google, uh, the last election was the first time that Google uh, included uh, some uh, political targeting. Uh, but it is very, uh, uh, just like a left leaning or right leaning. Uh, so it's not as a granular level uh, as uh, Facebook offers. So I'll just stop here um, and then um, engage with the speakers after later.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Professor Kim. All right, so now to round out our discussion with uh, yet another perspective is Dr. Megan Metzger, who is a postdoctoral fellow at, uh, at CRICA, sponsored the Wisconsin-Russia project, which is sponsored by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Uh, she recently received her PhD in political science at New York University and she's going to talk about Russia's efforts to influence elections elsewhere. Uh, We we tend to think that we're the only ones that matter here in the US, but actually, as as, uh, Dr. Mr. is gonna uh, illustrate, uh, we're not alone.
0: We're not. Um, Hi, thanks everybody for being here. Um, Yeah, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, not only interference in elections, but sort of the way that Russia has used strategies, particularly digital strategies, to try to exert influence abroad. And as you're maybe picking up from the other speakers, I think one of the places where Russia is really at the cutting edge is in applying these strategies outside of the country. So we often talk about China as being, having sort of some of the tightest control of the internet, and that's true domestically, but in terms of impact abroad and having clear strategies abroad, Russia really is sort of on the cutting edge of that. And we, what, we, we see this going back um, quite a long way. Um, you know. So, so some of the early examples of this um, predate widespread social media, um, things that happened in Estonia and especially in Georgia in 2008. During the conflict that happened in Georgia, there were, um, and leading up to that conflict, there were denial of service attacks uh, that were directed at um, government accounts, government institutions, and at and really at sort of trying to limit uh, internet in, in the country overall. Um, and then more recently in places like Ukraine, um, we see strategies including attempting to hack and access actual um, infrastructure for elections and, and trying to undermine the actual um, exercise of elections. And so the examples that um, were sort of addressed by earlier on, are things that we've seen happening in other countries for a long time. And one of the things that's challenging and that is gonna be really interesting in the American case is that especially early on and in, in cases like in Georgia, in Estonia, it could be challenging to definitively prove Russian state involvement. So the Russian state often, so while there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the Russian state is behind these, these attacks, one of the things that's been challenging in the past is that they've seemed to work with, uh, with not directly governmental organizations in order to carry out these kinds of attacks. And that's made the conversation a lot more murky around these issues. And so one of the things that seems to be interesting in the US case is that we seem to be finding slightly more direct evidence than we've had in other cases. And the reason that I think it's important that we sort of ground this discussion that we're moving forward <coughs> about tonight, which will mostly be about the US context, in understanding that this has happened starting throughout the former Soviet world, and in Central and Eastern Europe especially, but also recently in the German elections in 2015 and 2017, as well as in the most recent French elections. Um, Understanding the strategies that have been used in the past in those cases, I think, can give us insight into what um, happened here and also help as we look at how other countries attempt to deal with these issues, it can help us in strategizing um, about what to do. So as I mentioned, Early on, um, the, a lot of what happened was through denial of service types of ta- type of attacks. Um, and this often overlapped with campaigns of disinformation. So for example, there would be denial of service attacks that affected um, governmental institutions. In the Estonian case, that very nearly shut down the Estonian internet for, for some period of time. Um, but then concurrently with that, Um, For example, there would be web pages of the government would be hacked, so if people managed to access them, instead of the web page being there, there would be pictures of the Georgian leader with a Hitler mustache. Um, And then online there would be disinformation campaigns. So some of the strategies that we see around disinformation were developed in the context of of Central and Eastern Europe, of the post-Soviet world, and to some degree um, in Western Europe. And then... Uh, also similar to what we see in the United States we see discrediting of institutions and elites through hacked information and through misinformation and attempting to underline undermine trust in institutions um, and then finally as I mentioned, direct attacks on the institutions of elections that we and we see that happening specifically in Ukraine where they actually were able to catch on to that and it didn't it, they wound up being able to reboot their elect- election system in a way that Um, seems to have have meant that it functioned properly. Um, So oftentimes, if this this is brought up in U.S. media at all, it's sort of, you see it mentioned as like, these were the training wheels for the American situation. And I think that's one way to think about it if what you care about is only the American situation. But I think the other thing you can understand from these, from looking at these cases, there are things that they all have in common. These are all places where um, the Russian state had a real incentive um, and really benefited from undermining the existing administrations, the existing governments, from undermining progressing exercise of democracy, um, for promoting candidates that promoted particular types of viewpoints, um, which is something we've seen a lot in Central Europe, and through, and we can look at those those cases, and that I think can help us be a, can help to be a lens through which we understand what happened in the US context and how um, and how to understand um, and how to understand that going forward. I'll leave it there and let you guys ask questions. Okay, well, I,
1: I want to thank the panelists for for basically sticking to the very difficult for academics anyway, five minutes <laughs> of time of it. Uh, but now, as I said, I'd like to encourage some dialogue and discussion among our panelists. And, and to that end, let me just uh, open the floor to them to see would, would anybody like to ask a question of another panelist? Uh,
2: I've got one. There? Sure. Yeah. How are you? So Megan, uh, picking up where you left off, I guess I'm, I can't see you, but I'm going to trust you over there. She's over there. Uh, I haven't left the room. So there's involvement in other countries' elections before the U.S. election, and there's been involvement since, is the U.S. involvement viewed as kind of a watershed? Was that something where the Russian government viewed it as a success and motivated them to be involved in other democratic elections? Or were there some failings or alarm bells? Now they've, they've sort of been caught in doing that that's made them reluctant or where does the U.S. stand in that timeline of either accelerating what's happening or maybe pushing the pause button?
0: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure I know the exact answer. What I would say is there certainly have been successes before the U.S. So I think that although the, the electoral hacking that I mentioned in Ukraine failed, um, in terms of influencing <coughs> the informational environment in Ukraine, um, my own research and other research on that time period has suggested that that, that was much more successful. Um, and, and I think similarly, um, Germany felt that there was pretty significant impact in 2015. Um, I... Certainly, in the midst of all of... I might have expected, I guess, that following the situation in the U.S., that things would have slowed down. But that doesn't really... The evidence since then doesn't seem to be pointing in that direction. So um, the French elections, although there seem to have been some successes in noticing things that were happening and, and preventing them from going too far, mm-hmm. and I am i think one thing to talk about later is like how they accomplished that... Um, that there certainly were lots of attempts made in the French elections, and the the and the Sweden is gearing up for their elections right now. We see that they're being very active, but they seem to be. I mean, obviously, no one's no one's giving details of what's happening exactly, but it seems that that there's still active attempts um, going on at interference in those elections, certainly in the recent Czech elections as well. Um, so, I think, from my perspective, the U.S. election. Seems to me like it's maybe a watershed, not so much for Russia, although maybe Scott will have a different opinion on that. But maybe more, it's a watershed for um, cooperation of countries throughout throughout the world because this has been happening for for a, quite a while. And um, what I've noticed in the last like, twelve months, maybe last year, is. is um, there's seeming to be more coordination, especially in Europe, among countries that are trying to sort of prevent large-scale <laughs> interference. But, Scott, I don't know if you want to add to that from what you know.
3: Well, no, I, I actually have a follow-up question, which is, uh, so, but, but to Barry, so it seems like one impediment to that coordination, from what I can tell, is the general unwillingness to date of the Trump administration to really address this problem head on. And so I guess I'm wondering, first of all, do you agree with that characterization? And second, to the extent that you do, if you'd care to speculate on why that might be the case? Uh, yes, and I do. Uh,
0: so <laughs> there's,
2: there's been a tremendous amount of activity trying to shore up the U.S. election system. And by that, I mean the state and local systems mm-hmm. that administer elections. That's one thing that makes the United States different from these other countries where elections are happening is that each state essentially conducts its own affairs and even within states many counties and localities run their own affairs. Uh, I can tell you that state election officials are spending all of their time now on security. That's the number one issue. Uh, There was just a meeting this past week of the heads of election bureaus in all the states and they got briefings from the Department of Homeland Security. They met with folks from the FBI, uh, cryptographers, others who could be helpful. Uh, So they've really amped up their efforts. Uh, There are also private entities working to help states. There's a a project out of Harvard that involves campaign professionals from both the Clinton campaign and other Republican, non-Trump Republican campaigns that that have put together playbooks (coughs) for election officials to give them guidance on how to train election officials, maintain the security of their election systems, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security announced that election infrastructure in this country would now be elevated to critical infrastructure. (coughs) That's the first time that's ever been done and it puts it on the same level as bridges, ports, highways, the water system, and other things that we think might be infiltrated. That was done just at the end of the Obama administration. So there are are a lot of activities happening and now there are bills in Congress, uh, bipartisan bills, a couple in the Senate that could really make improvements to US election security. There's one called the Secure Elections Act, which has a Republican sponsor and a Democratic sponsor They would do a lot of things, providing money, training, incentives, coordination. Um, But there's one part of the government that's not cooperating, and that's the Trump administration itself. And you may have seen over the last few weeks, there have been some security officials or Trump administration officials called into Congress to testify. Uh, Just this week, there were a couple. And in each case, they were asked by members of Congress at these hearings, did the president give you any instructions to be working on this problem? Or what, what's the advice you've gotten from the top about what you ought to be doing about this or what funding has been allocated within the administration? And in every case, they've said, we've gotten no specific instructions from the president or the White House generally to do much of anything. Uh, so, so why is that happening? Um, I, th- I think it's partly the chaos that is how the White House now runs, that is just working on a lot of different things or is focused on many different things simultaneously and sort of jumps to whatever is in the news or in front of the president that day. And so it's hard to have a sustained focus on a complicated issue like this. Uh, but the other part of it, I think, is Trump as a personality, that he's he's thin-skinned and and worried about his election looking illegitimate if he admitted that the Russians played some role in affecting the outcome. You remember his boast about the size of the crowd at the inauguration being the biggest <coughs> ever in any place, and... Um, and not really wanting to admit that he lost the popular vote, he sort of fudged on that issue as well. So there are a number of things where he's just worried about his appearance, and so I think to open the door at all to say that the the election was tainted in any way by Russian influence, and heaven forbid that he or his campaign would have connected with Russians in any way, uh, just undermines his public the public impression he wants to give.
3: So, so the only thing that's a little bit, so 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 that all makes sense to me. But the only thing that seems a little bit odd about that explanation is that. Trump has said that he's running for re-election. And so you would think that he would want to bolster the legitimacy of the American electoral system so as to increase the legitimacy of any election victory in 2020. You would think so. Uh,
2: (laughs) So so I I think part of this is the chaos of the White House not focusing on Mm -hmm. an issue in a dedicated way. Part of it, I think, is there's, there's a split motivation here. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, to be a legitimate re-elected president, you'd want to say this was done with integrity, a system that's protected. On the other hand, if you think the Russians were helping your campaign in some way, <laughs> would it be a terrible thing if they were involved? I, I don't know what the calculus is. Great. Great. I'm not sure that Trump knows what the calculus is about his own thinking on this. So I won't try to psychoanalyze him. But, but I agree, there's, there's some tension there about what a president ought to be doing versus what a candidate ought to be doing.
1: If I might then, I wanted to ask a, a question of uh, Professor Galbach, and that is, uh, from the Russians' perspective, you know, what were they trying to accomplish? There's been various uh, debates over that. Uh, so so what were, what were their motives, and how do you think sitting right now they assess uh, you know, whether or not this was a good idea? Let's put it that way, <laughs> in, in the Kremlin.
3: Okay, so those are related questions. Um, so why why the intervention in the U.S. presidential election, and were there any second thoughts? So I guess I can think of maybe four reasons why there might have been an incentive to intervene in the U.S. presidential election in 2016. So the first of these maybe is just a pure sort of retaliation motive. So Putin blames the West for NATO expansion, perhaps for the collapse of the Soviet Union. He blames Clinton directly, judging by his rhetoric, for the post-election protests in 2011. There's a lot of grievances vis-a-vis the West in general, and the US in particular. And so he might have been motivated simply to try to retaliate for what he views as a systematic and longstanding Western intervention in Russian domestic politics. So a second possibility, I guess, is that this is really aimed not so much at U.S. voters, but at the Russian population. So think about what are the incentives to – what's the argument that you would want to make if you were a Russian propagandist to try to bolster the, the – uh, um, uh, security of, of Vladimir Putin in power. So it's hard to argue that Russian elections are free and fair. So Russians are not idiots. They know their elections are not free and fair. But what you can do, perhaps, is convince them that elections everywhere are not free and fair. So this is a strategy that goes by the name of whataboutism. It's like, well, what about, what about the U.S.? Right? And if you can convince folks that it's the same everywhere, then maybe they're less likely to protest against the way that things are run at home. And Trump himself played into this strategy during the 2016 presidential election by repeatedly arguing that the system was rigged, that Hillary was likely to steal the election, et cetera. And so by amplifying that message, there may have been domestic political benefits to the Kremlin. So a third possibility, I guess, is that there could just be an attempt to sow chaos in the U.S. so as to distract U.S. voters and U.S. policymakers from issues of concern to the Kremlin. So, like, I mean, just ask everybody here, how much have you been reading about Ukraine in the news recently? (laughs) Okay, so it's a self-selected crowd, so there are three or four of us, right? But... um, But for the most part, five, (laughs) but for the most part, this has not been a major topic of conversation. We've, as a country, essentially been fighting with each other since the 2016 election, and it's moved an awful lot of other stuff off of the radar screen. It's made it difficult for the U.S. to engage abroad in countries and in policy arenas where Russia has a stake that might be different from the U.S. stake. Uh, and then finally this comes back to the second part of the question i guess is that russia may have simply been trying to infiltrate in some way the us electoral system to try to get somebody elected who seemed to be more sympathetic to kremlin views than the other candidate so we know that at some point trump essentially turned on a dime and went from being very anti putin to being very pro putin i I guess we don't quite know why that happened when it did, but we know that there was a, a successful attempt to change the Republican Party platform during the Republican National Convention vis-à-vis Russia and Ukraine. And my sense is that even if this is not necessarily the original motivation for intervening in U.S. politics, which, as we know from the Mueller indictment and other sources, states to at least 2014, substantially before the US election and before Trump announced that he was running for president, at some point this may have been part of the motivation uh, was to try to get their candidate elected rather than somebody else. Now that raises the question of whether or not there might be second thoughts at this point. So US-Russia relations have not blossomed under President Trump. In some ways things are much worse now even than they were a couple of years ago. And it also relates to the strategy of just making the whataboutism strategy. So if the point was to argue that U.S. elections were irredeemably rigged and that there was no way that somebody could win a free and fair election in the U.S., and that the evidence for that was that Hillary Clinton was the corrupt candidate and she was going to win the election. The fact that she didn't win the election, in a way, undercuts the message a little bit as well. So there might have been some second thoughts there.
0: Please. I wonder if you can talk just a little bit more about um, your findings from your own research and, and um, specifically about, and I'm sure that you don't have a, maybe you don't have a definitive answer, but what is your sense of um, the impact of these? Um, strategies that you are studying on social media, um, on maybe on either the outcome of the election or in other ways that maybe go beyond or, or are, are tangentially related to the the election itself. Uh,
4: that's that's a tough question because um, you know. For any election researchers, it's really hard <coughs> to estimate the impact of the election campaigns, uh, even you know election campaigns by known actors. But this is, we are completely unaware of these campaigns uh, um, until the election is over. So uh, it is hard to say that. But um, well. I'll just quote like uh, what uh, the tech companies said. So, uh, the Facebook said um, there's like a 11.4 million reach. Uh, so uh, that is like not initial like a 3,000. Like a, after they added uh, the numbers, uh, and then they said, well, it's estimated 11.4 million reach uh, if we include uh, sharing. Uh, because some of the messages are shared by just the ordinary citizens without knowing that it's a uh disinformation operation um then it goes up to 126 million um and then twitter uh said it's um, 0.3 okay, in terms of reach that's like a 0.3%. so that would be like a I guess like a, if we uh, say like a 14 age population, then probably the 70 million or something. Um, so um, tr- people try to un- uh, underestimate or minimize the impact, uh, but um, first of all, it's just a hard to estimate impact because even though we have, like, for example, we have a research, we, we know because our program, we use like a crowdsourced program, so we know how many people uh, saw this. But because we don't have any information about uh, Facebook user baseline, it's just uh, you know they don't share the information. So it's really hard for even researchers to estimate the uh, uh, reach. Um, and even we are relying on uh, tech companies' reach, uh, if we calculate it, that's actually a lot. <laughs> so uh, and then especially if we think about Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Uh, and Michigan uh, vote margins, Um, uh, that is, you know, that was very, like, a razor thing. Um, So, in short, like, it's hard to uh, say what the impact on the election, uh, and uh, it is hard to estimate, like, how many people are influenced or even persuaded by that, Uh, But in terms of the reach, it's not uh, a negligible number.
1: If I can just permit myself a quick follow-up question to Professor Kim. So uh, we've heard some from Professor Bird about uh, actions that election commissions are taking to securitize the uh, the voting systems. And that's clearly, uh, it's probably the least talked about, but it's clearly a very important part. But are there any actions that uh, government or other interested parties can take to try to Counter the the use of social media. I mean, it seems like a very different order of phenomena. Trying to protect voter rolls and voting machines from trying to you know blunt the in potential impact of these fake news stories that are getting spread through bots and through trolls and and you know, through actual individuals. Uh, is there any information on that?
4: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, if if we put this uh, Russian interference in the election. Uh, so on social media, uh, put it into a larger context, uh, it's one of the reasons <coughs> is that uh, we have a lot of loopholes. Uh, like, first of all, um, there is no regulatory policy uh, for digital political advertising. Um, so no disclaimer, disclosure requirement that would apply, apply to like, a broadcast media. So that is a really big problem. Um, so unless the sponsor is a candidate at campaigns, uh, any groups could uh, run political campaigns without revealing their identity uh, <coughs> and they remain an- anonymous, but like, there will be like, no public monitoring. Um, so FEC currently, uh, FEC had like, a big uh, open uh, public hearing, and I like, got a lot of like, unusually large size uh, that, that comments a uh, comment. And uh, currently considering um, um, changing the disclaimer and then uh, disclose uh, disclosure like a requirement. Uh, also, um, more specifically for um, digital advertising on like a large tech uh, platforms, uh, like a Facebook or uh, Google, or Twitter. Um, there's been discussion uh, uh, about like, a digital advertising regulation, the Congress level, so which is on, honest as act. So honest with that, uh, extend uh, the current regulatory policies uh, applied to broadcast media to digital uh, media. Uh, however, the current uh, uh, regulation on uh, election communication and broadcast media they're only limited to the as that mention uh, candidate names. Uh, but again like, we have seen a lot of uh, as uh, Russian as uh, specified like uh, candidate names but uh, everyone knows uh, who they are talking about. Uh, so those kind of things uh, still remain doable. But uh, at least uh, if we have like uh, an honest as act and then new efficacy uh, disclaimer and uh, uh, disclosure rules uh, for digital media, uh, at least we'll, we'll see the researchers or journalists or investigators and the nonprofits uh, are able to monitor uh, and attract uh, those like, sources and sponsors of the ads. So have, we have some hope.
3: <laughs> Can I follow up with a question for Dr. Metzger? So um, you mentioned that the French had somewhat. Uh, uh, been successful in blunting an attempted intervention through social media in their elections. So how do they do that, and are there lessons there for other countries?
0: Yeah, so s- somewhat being the key word, and, and not, I mean, I think they were to some degree successful on social media. I think their bigger successes were elsewhere. Um, they noticed uh, attempted hacks in a way that, obviously, in the case of at least some of the hacks in the U.S., the DNC and things like that, didn't get noticed. They noticed um, attempts on uh, Emmanuel Macron, for example. Um, But really, the key thing that I think we should be learning from the French case and from the extremely proactive effort being made by Sweden right now, which um, we'll see, that election hasn't happened yet, so we'll see what happens, but they're being very proactive, is that they worked really hard and and the Swedes are working very hard um, to sort of combine efforts. So in France, for example, the press made a real attempt uh, to under to undermine and, and talk about bad polling. So there were really manipulative polls that had been conducted in ways that were not very ethical that showed certain candidates winning who clearly weren't winning. And um, the, the media cooperated with sort of the government in, in sort of, I mean, I don't think that they, they needed to be convinced too much, but they sort of said, these are not, this isn't, Real right, they, they were vocal about the problems that were happening with the polling and pointing out the issues. Um, and there was cooperation, which I think we sort of see as an issue here, between the national and the local levels. And that's one of the, the key things that's happening in Sweden right now, um, is that there's like high level training for very low level officials. So people at, at really local levels are being trained in really specific ways to sort of recognize problems. I'm not sure any of that addresses what you're actually asking which is about social media mm-hmm. I, I think that the I think that um, what dr. Kim mentioned are in terms of regulation is extremely important. I think part of the problem is also that we have private companies that until recently have, been reluctant to accept any kind of responsibility for the information that's uh, disseminated on their platforms that have viewed themselves as sort of blank canvases on which people can express themselves. And I think we're reaching a point where we're going to have to have a conversation um, about that in a more in a more nuanced way. And I think you see Twitter and Facebook starting to react. Um, but I... I don't know the answer to, and I don't think I've seen any great successes in undermining um, the most insidious forms of this where we're talking about fake accounts <coughs> that are run by actual people sitting behind a computer. Um, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that in the French case, they were able to sort of attack that except through sort of media correcting, which we don't know. I and mean, we don't know how effective that is either.